Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. Beginning in verse 31 of Luke chapter 4, and we will read through the end of the chapter this morning. The Word of God reads, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them, and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed, and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him, and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the, others, to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. He was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of God for the people of God this Sunday morning. Now this has been a great week in terms of weather, has it not been? I know that, uh, that rainy days can affect us as they accumulate, but we have got to soak these things up because before long, we're going to face some really long weeks of South Texas that are just dry, and hot. Weeks like those who are involved in our church's egg ministry uh, that will see them needing to feed their chickens crushed ice to avoid the chickens laying boiled eggs. Weeks like where we may find ourselves snacking on some jalapenos just to try to cool down. And whoever's been praying for rain, do not stop. Please do not stop. I had lunch this week with a pair of older men And they were educating me on how times were uh, when they were born. They were educating me on their childhoods. I recognized in that conversation how much is different now than it was for them in their childhood. And for them, their first homes had no electricity. Their first homes had no running water. And they looked back upon those memories as they told me these stories, and they had smiles from ear to ear speaking about the simplicity of life that they enjoyed. And I could do nothing but help but think about how 
more modern parents and children decry the, the evil of the world when there's no Wi-Fi available wherever we might stay or go. And it got me thinking even more so about this passage and how much has changed in medicine in the last century. I mean, today we have specialists for every part of the body and a specialist for every procedure known to man. And you can see any one of those specialists if you make an appointment today and we'll set it out for about four to six weeks if they can even honor it. Yet it wasn't long ago that doctors were all general practitioners. Doctors were those that made these things called house calls. Sure, the doctors had offices in town, but often the doctor would hang a sign in the window or the door of the office that said the doctor is out when the doctor had gone to make these things called home visits or house calls. And if you went to go see the doctor at his office and he was out on a house call, you'd walk away pretty disappointed because you would not find any relief from what ailed you that particular day. Well, this morning, church, we're going to look at a day in the life of King Jesus, and we're going to look at a day in the life of the one who is also presented to us as the great physician. And friends, it pleases me to inform you that today the great physician is in. He is in and ready to see you. He is in and ready to help you. And there is no wait. You don't need to walk away this morning feeling disappointed. And what I want us to do with our time that remains this morning is to see what Luke is showing us about how Jesus stands apart from everyone else. How Jesus stands apart from everyone else. And we're going to work through a, a few different ways that Jesus does that, that we see in this passage. And the first thing I want us to call our attention to about how Jesus stands apart from everyone else is Jesus has authority. That's what we find if our Bibles are still open and we're looking at verses 31 and 32 right now. And I tell you that Capernaum, the city in which Jesus is going to as we're introduced in this passage, was a city that was lost for ages. And early in the 20th century, a, a group of German Catholic monks established a monastery on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it was during World War II that these German monks were kept under house arrest by the British authorities and these German monks were prohibited from leaving the grounds of their monastery, all because it was thought that they might be Nazi spies. So they had nothing better to do, and they went out in the backyard and they started digging around. And wouldn't you know it, after their digging, they find the lost city of Capernaum. Now the site has been excavated, and today there's actually a sign at the entrance that says, Welcome to Capernaum, hometown of Jesus. If we were to remember back to our passage last week, we would be reminded that the residents of Nazareth tried to kill Jesus. So Jesus left his boyhood hometown and he set up his ministry base in Capernaum. And as Jesus taught there, the people noticed this guy's different. He spoke with authority. They observed and they said, this is something totally new. See, Jesus was different from what they had previously been exposed to. For example, when the teachers of, of the Word of God spoke, they often, as these people were exposed to, they were often referring to what an Old Testament prophet might have said. And when the Old Testament prophets spoke, they always did so in this way. They would say, thus said the Lord. 
In other words, the, old, the prophets of the Old Testament spoke for God. When God wanted a message delivered in the Old Testament times, he would give that message to a prophet, and the prophet would deliver it like a mailman. Prophets never spoke from their own wisdom. They spoke the word of God that had been delivered to them. So while there were prophets who said, Thus saith the Lord, there were also the custom of the day. Anytime someone would try to teach from the word of God, there would be a scribe or a teacher, various names for these, and they, they would describe their teaching in this way. They'd say, Rabbi so-and-so says. By the way, this happens a lot today when we introduce what we're trying to teach by saying, well, Pastor so-and-so says. But during Jesus' time, the scribes were the educated Jews who were considered the religious teachers or the rabbis. They copied the scriptures as well as the huge body of oral tradition that surrounded the scriptures. And when these rabbis taught... They were careful to only ever quote what other rabbis had already said about the passage or about the topic. They never applied an original thought to the passage of Scripture. For instance, their teaching consisted of always saying, well, Rabbi so-and-so says. That's an example. And during the time of Jesus, there were two main rabbis that were most often quoted. Their names were Shammai and Hillel. But there were others that might have been quoted. The scribes never taught with authority. They only quoted others. So where the prophets spoke for God, the teachers, the scribes, the rabbis, they spoke about God. But Jesus, when he spoke, he always said, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. If the prophets spoke for God and the scribes spoke about God, the thing that made Jesus totally unique was this. Jesus spoke as God. Jesus spoke as the author of Scripture. And by the way, have you ever noticed the, the connection between the English word author and the English word authority? Have you ever read a book and then heard the author speak about it? The difference is like night and day. That's why the Bible says that the people were amazed when Jesus taught. Jesus took the deep truth of God and made it easy for everyday people to comprehend. He told stories as he taught. He used humor as he taught. He talked about common things of the day like the birds of the air or the flowers of the field. The everyday average Joe would love to hear him come and teach. And I wonder, have you ever heard some really smart, some, some intellectual person speak and when they teach or they speak, what they say is so obscure that you have like absolute difficulty trying to understand what they're saying. And we try to excuse that for the benefit of the speaker who's really vague, and we just dismiss it as saying, you know, they're just so brilliant. They're just so brilliant. But it's not true. It's not true when you look at things through the lens of an old saying that goes, just because you can't see the bottom of the river doesn't mean that it's deep. The waters just might be muddy. That's true of preachers and teachers too. But as you read the words of Jesus, I hope that you are amazed at the simplicity of what our Lord said. I hope you're equally amazed at how profound it is what he said. The common people love to hear him teach. But every time Jesus taught, he enraged the religious professionals of the day. He enraged them because he didn't have the correct credentials. 
Jesus didn't have a formal education like most rabbis. Instead, Jesus had a unique access. He was able to hear his father's voice. We, if we were reading in John chapter 7 this morning, we would read that the Jews were amazed at the teaching of Jesus and asked, how did this man get so much learning without ever having studied? And Jesus, upon hearing this answer, he says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And this was such a radical statement that the Jews accused Jesus of being demon-possessed over this. We've got to ask right now, did Jesus have power? Or did he have authority? If you're asking that question, I need to let you know he had both. Now, in the Bible, the word for power is dunamis, and that's the word that we derive our English word dynamite from. Explosive, powerful, you get the idea. And the word for authority is exousia. It means having the right to use power correctly. And it's important for us to understand that Jesus had both this power and this authority. And one without the other, by the way, is absolutely useless. It is possible to have power, but no authority. Let me give you an example. Imagine you're sitting at a traffic light, waiting for that light, that red light to turn green. To your left is a Lotus. If you don't know, that's a type of car that has 2,000 horsepower under the hood, and it's just waiting for that green light so it can fire away like a lightning bolt. That's power. But Jesus, excuse me, but, but just before the light begins to change, you see a policeman. He's off uh, just along the way. You can see his, par his car parked along the way. And he's evidently filling in for the school crossing guard that day. And he walks along the center of the street and he holds up his hand. And all of traffic comes to a stop. And then the policeman motions and a little girl with the backpack on begins to walk across the street. Now, the car had much more power but the little girl was under the authority of the policeman. And have all the power doesn't mean you have authority. But it's also, also possible to have authority without having power. Let me give you another story to illustrate this. There was once a federal geologist who had been authorized by the United States government to go around and conduct some seismographic tests at certain locations. And he approached a rancher this day and he said, I need to go out into your pasture and I need to take some readings. And the rancher looked at the government man and said, you're not going out in my pasture, young man. And the, the government worker, he gets a little irate and he pulls out his official government document that's signed by the secretary of the, of the interior. And he shows it to the rancher and he says, this piece of paper right here says I can go out in your field. I can go out there and conduct these tests. And the rancher said, I don't give a rip what that piece of paper says. You're not going out in my pasture. Well, the geologist, he gets tired of all of this, so he just ignores what the rancher says, and he climbs over the fence. And he walked out into the middle of the pasture, and he begins to set up his instrumentation. And the rancher sees what's happening, and he just goes up and he leans on the fence, decides he's going to watch the whole thing. And in a few minutes, the ground begins to shake. And here the geologist thinks that, you know, now he's actually going to measure the thing that he came to measure. Thinks that there's a minor earthquake going on. That is until he looks up and he saw an, a huge angry bull that is running right towards him. Running right across that pasture, right at him. 
And the bull had its head lowered and it's zeroed in on the poor guy. And the, the, the geologist, he, he forgets his equipment that's like millions of dollars that's out in the field. And he starts running towards the fence, screaming for the rancher to help. And the rancher just hollers back at him, why don't you show him your paper? So you, you can go out in the field if you're that, ge- that geologist. You can have the authority to do that. doesn't mean you have the power to do that. Jesus had the authority, and Jesus had the power. And this leads us to a place where you have to ask a personal question. Personal question, ask yourself this. What's the basis of my truth? What is the basis of my truth? See, you, you can answer that question, but the answer will give you automatically an answer of the thousands of other questions in your life. See, to make it simple, you'll generally have three options or three conclusions in answering this personal question I've asked you to ask of yourself. For some people, their basis of truth is what other people say. Some just follow the trend of our culture and popular opinion drives what they do and what they believe. These are the people who read and believe, for example, all the trolls on the news stations or believe all the trolls on social media and everything that they say. For others, the basis of their truth is whatever they think. Whatever they think, what they tell themselves, it's what I think. These people pride themselves on not going along with the crowd. Instead, they think for themselves. And their own intelligence, their own experience becomes their God. But there's a third option that you might land on. And the other option is this, what God says. The only place to find what God says, by the way, is the Bible. And how you answer this question is more important than ever right now. For example, if you have tuned into the news or read anything of religious news lately, consider what's happened to so-called Christian churches who have deviated from concern from what God says on the subject of sexuality. The church has been infiltrated by social revolutionaries who are determined to transform culture and morality. I'll tell you, I'm about to land in the place that the world now defines as bigotry because we can redefine words every day. But hey, I've been called worse. It doesn't bother me. I've got to tell you that the most loving thing that we can do as the body of Christ is to encourage one another to pursue righteousness to pursue righteousness on the basis of what God has shown us in his word to be righteous. God says that righteous sexuality comes in two forms, and only these two forms. First, by celebrating singleness if you are single, where you abstain from having sex of any type. Or, by celebrating marriage that can only occur between one man and one woman where sex is encouraged. And I fall short as a brother in Christ if I do not warn you all about the danger of tolerating sexual sin, whether it's sexual sin that's taking place among heterosexuals or homosexuals. And I know it's completely uncomfortable for everyone or anyone to have these types of conversations. But the most loving thing to do is to make you aware that sexual sin is not tolerated by God. 
Yet the dilemma is that the world has infiltrated the church and has managed to convince people that there's a different definition of love than how God in his word defines it. I mean, God's love would see a perfect sinless Savior sent to and through a cross to deal with all of our sin. Or the world's convinced some churches to to define love as how much sin can we tolerate? Is there even really sin after all? Tolerance is now the standard of love. And I need you to know that at First Baptist Church Divine, we pray that sinners from all walks of life would feel welcomed here. Please know that we also pray that in the course of ministering the Word of God to every sinner here, which, by the way, we all are chiefest right here, okay? We pray that the Holy Spirit would bring us to concern ourselves with what God says over what any one of us might say or what, what any one of us might think. And that would then bring us to a place of repentance and faith where we find ourselves obedient to Jesus. So Jesus had authority. He had power. But we also see in this text that we are exposed to the superiority of Jesus. If our Bibles are still open, we are turning our attention right now to verses 34 through 41. And where there we find that Jesus has superior power over two different forces. Two different forces. First, he has superiority over Satan. And while Jesus was deli- uh, delivering his synagogue sermon, a disturbed man interrupts him. Immediately, Jesus recognized this man was in the grip of Satan's power. He recognized that he was demon-possessed. And notice in the text that, that Jesus, uh, that the demon recognized exactly who Jesus was. And maybe curious to you, maybe, about why, uh, why there's this type of interaction. Now, there was an ancient myth that said a demon could not be cast out unless the demon's name was called. But the demon is able to, if the demon's able to first call out the name of the person attempting the exorcism, then the whole thing would be a bust. It'd be a failure. That's why the demon and the man cries out the name of Jesus first. But that's a foolish myth. That's all that is. It wasn't true. And the demon gained no advantage over Jesus, even though he shouted Jesus' name first. In fact, the demon asked Jesus a couple more questions. He asked, what do you want with us? Indicating that there were more than one demon in the man. And then he also asked, have you come to destroy us? Do you notice that Jesus refused to answer either of those questions? As you study in this gospel account from Luke, you're going to discover Jesus didn't always answer questions. In fact, one of his favorite responses was to answer a question with a question of his own. So don't get all uptight if all your questions aren't always answered. Jesus didn't always answer every question. But Jesus' only reply to the demon was this, be silent and come out of this person. Of course, the demons had to obey because Jesus' power is superior. And then look at the second question that the demon asked Jesus. Have you come to destroy us? Why do you think he would ask such, such a question? Because he knew who Jesus is. The demon was expressing his greatest fear that indeed Jesus had come to destroy Satan's handiwork. Now Jesus refuses to answer that question at that point, but the Bible answers it clearly elsewhere. 
If you were to look in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, you would read that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. Now let's remember that Satan is nothing more than a fallen angel. He's not a minor God who is almost as powerful as the Lord God. No, he's not. Satan does, however, command an army of fallen angels who are intent on carrying out his plan for your life. And Jesus reveals Satan's plan when he says in John chapter 10 that the thief, speaking of the evil one, comes to steal and kill and destroy. The evil one's plans for your life is, and for your health and for your family is to kill and steal and destroy. But here's the thing. Satan's a defeated foe. You don't have to have any fear of him. I read a an account about a, a zoo attendant who entered a cage of a lion while people just stood and watched. He entered the cage and he had nothing in his hands but a broom. And carefully closing the door, he proceeded to sweep the floor of the cage with that broom. One of the onlookers noticed that the zoo employee had no weapon on his person to ward off an attack if the lion chose to attack him. In fact, when he got to the corner of the cage where the lion was lying, the attendant took the, the butt of the broom and just nudged the animal with it. And the lion growled at him, and then it got up and it lay down in the other corner of the, of the enclosure. And the observer remarks to the attendant, hey Man, you're, you're a really brave guy. That or you've tamed the lion in some way. And the attendant says, You know, I'm not brave at all. But I know something about that lion that you do not. The attendant chuckles and he says, I know that that lion is old. I know that that lion is slow. And I know that he ain't got no teeth. The Bible does say that Satan roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But that's all he's got left is a roar. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he rendered Satan toothless and clawless. Not only is the devil truthless, he's toothless. And while the devil is clawless, he's not clueless. Friends, he is shrewd and he is tricky. But rejoice today that Jesus is far superior in power. Rejoice today that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So he is superior over Satan. We also see in this passage that Jesus has superiority over sickness. In this passage, when Jesus leaves church, he goes to Peter's house for lunch. However, upon arising, uh, arriving, it's learned that Peter's mother-in-law was in bed with a major fever. And Luke, if you don't know this, he's a doctor. And so he uses a medical word describing it in what we would call a raging fever. If it wasn't for this account, by the way, we wouldn't know that Peter had a wife because she's never mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. And so Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And someone has said about this healing of Jesus's, or Peter's mother-in-law that this is why Peter denied the Christ three times, by the way. It's supposed to be a joke. But seriously, Jesus goes to the bedside of this dear lady. And Luke tells us Jesus rebukes the fever, just like he rebuked the demon earlier that morning. And she was instantly healed and then got up and started serving lunch. Then later that afternoon when the sun sets, multitudes of sick people are brought to Jesus. They waited until dusk because it was the Sabbath until sunset. 
So it was unlawful to carry sick people. It was unlawful to walk more than half a mile. It was unlawful to heal. But can't you imagine hearing the news spread around that region? The great physician is in Capernaum. He's at the house of Peter. There's hope. Let's go see this Jesus. And then I can just picture Jesus healing people and casting out demons late into the night. Jesus has power over sickness. Jesus is still in the healing business. And every time there is healing, it's Jesus who has done it. Sometimes God heals gradually through wonderful medical care that's provided by doctors and nurses and medicine. Sometimes the Lord heals instantly without any human assistance. Sometimes God doesn't heal at all. I don't understand how and when and why, but I believe it and I teach it. But I'm certain that the most serious kind of sickness and the most serious kind of disease in mankind is sin. And this congenital moral cancer afflicts every one of us. And if this moral cancer is not treated by Jesus, it will result in eternal death. Now, there are millions of us who have been touched by Jesus and have been healed by Jesus of this sin sickness, and we are now whole. Friends, to me, that is still the greatest miracle that we will ever see being saved by Christ. Well, let's look back at Peter's mother-in-law for a moment. Jesus went to her bedside. He touched her. He healed her. Jesus still makes bedside visits. Jesus still makes house calls. He's here today and ready to step up to your side to heal you of your sin sickness. Why don't you let him? Here's another personal question for you. Have you ever been touched and changed by Jesus? Because if you have, if you believe you have, I've got to ask, are you joyfully serving him? You might ask, can I be saved and really not know that it happened? Not really. That's like saying you can get married and not really know about it. It's always a life-changing moment when Jesus touches you and heals you. Did you see what Peter's mother-in-law did when Jesus touched her? He got up and started, she got up and started serving Jesus. That's a pretty good sign that you've been touched if you have an overwhelming sense of gratitude that makes you want to joyfully serve Jesus for the rest of your life. Jesus has authority. Jesus has superiority. Jesus also has a priority. That's in verses 42 through 44 if you're still reading along. The priority of Jesus is seen in two ways. First, it was his desire to get alone with God for prayer. And after an evening of healing people and casting out demons, Jesus got away from the crowd to pray. Luke also tells us that at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. It had been a busy Sabbath. Jesus had preached in the synagogue. He had lunch at Peter's house. Then all evening, Jesus was busy taking care of the needs of people. And in spite of this, Jesus still knew it was important to get alone with his heavenly Father and pray. Worship is connecting with God. And you must be doing that privately before your public worship is meaningful. And I'll tell you, as we continue along in Luke, we're going to see Jesus praying a lot. 
And you may think you're too busy to get up early every morning and to spend time alone with God. Jesus was on the most important mission in the history of the planet, though. And he knew that he had only three years to accomplish his ministry before he would die. And yet, what you see here, Jesus making it a priority to spend time alone with his father in prayer. I hope you see that the lesson is obvious here. The very best way to start every day of your life is to find a solitary place and spend quiet time alone with God. Talk to him. Listen to him. And if you think you're too busy to do that, my friend, you're just too busy. It is a matter of setting it as a priority and then managing your time. There was once a business leader who was leading a conference on time management. And he had a large glass jar and he set it up on a table in front of a room and that, uh, that was filled with eager young business people who wanted to learn how to better manage their time. That jar was empty and the leader puts in six or seven large rocks into that jar until it's full to the top. And he asked the attendees, is the jar full? And they all nodded. Yeah, it's full. Then he took some pebbles and he poured, uh, poured them into the jar until it reached to the lip. And again, the leader asks, is the jar full? And by now the attendees are catching on, so nobody dared say yes on this one, that it was full. And then the leader took a container of very fine sand and poured it into the jar until it reached to the top. And he asked, is it full? And this time some of them answered, surely the jar is full now. To their surprise, the leader takes out a container of water and he fills in the jar until the water is up to the very brim of the edge. And so the jar is now full with large rocks, pebbles, water, and sand. By this point, he has the entire room's attention. And he asks the class, what does this jar tell us about our time management? One bright man raises his hand and he says this, it says, it means that no matter how busy you are, there's always a way to add more to your schedule. And everybody in the room nods in agreement. Surely that's what it must mean. And the leader said, you're wrong, young man. The point is this, if I hadn't put the large rocks in first, there would have never been room for them. And the leader went on to explain that much of what we do in our lives is water and pebbles, and sand. But really useful people make sure that the few important things in life actually get done first. And in the life of Jesus, one of the big rocks was spending time alone with his father in prayer. Is that a priority in your life? Is it? We're not a praying church, we're in trouble, church. In addition, we can see the priority of Jesus can also be expressed as his desire to go to the people and share. See, in Nazareth, they ran him out of town. But in Capernaum, they did just the opposite. They begged him to stay only in Capernaum. After all, there was a long line of people who were waiting outside to be healed. And in Jesus' reply, we see the other side of his priority. He shared that his main mission was not just to heal sick people, no, his mission was to go to the spiritually sick people and to share good news with them. Jesus shared the good news that the kingdom of God was near. 
And I'll tell you, you are a subject in the kingdom of God when you are submitting to the king and doing his will. If you look in Matthew chapter 6 at the model prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are two petitions from our Lord. They're two separate requests, but they're asking God for the same thing. In heaven, God's will is done perfectly. And when you're doing God's will, then His kingdom has come into your life. I hope you can see both sides of Jesus' priority. First, there was withdrawing from people to develop intimacy with the Father. Then there was going out to the people to, to announce the good news. First, there is worship, spending time focusing on God. And then there is work, going out for God. These two aspects of the Christian life should be as natural, my friends, as breathing is to you right now. When you inhale, you are receiving God's presence, receiving God's grace. When you exhale, you're sharing God's word with others. And in the Christian life, there, this is a twofold priority that should become as natural to us as breathing. If you were to read through the letters of the Apostle Paul, you can see one grand priority that captivated his life. That's to know Christ and to make Him known. Here's one last personal question for you. What is your priority? What is your priority? Now don't give me some reflexive spiritual answer, by the way. Be honest. Take a moment and think about it. Ask yourself, what do you develop your most thought to, or devote your most thought to? What do you devote your most talk to? What do you vote to devote your most time to? What do you devote your most treasure to? And when you find that person or that purpose or that possession that demands most of those four things in your life, write it down. Because I just helped you find your priority in life. What do you think God's trying to say to us today? Might it be first to listen to him? To listen to him because he has authority and he's the only source of real truth? Might it be to trust him? Trust him alone because he alone is the only one that has the power to heal and save you? Might it be to seek him and serve him? Whatever it is that he's speaking to you today, make that your primary purpose. Make it your main priority in life. There was once a great pianist who was preparing to give a concert. And in the audience, a mother brought her young son who had just started taking piano lessons. She wanted to encourage him. Before the concert, the little boy was so bored with all the hubbub that was going on that he wandered away from his mother who's in the course of conversation with friends. He saw this big, beautiful grand piano on the stage, and so he walked up to it unnoticed, and he sat down at the bench. And then he began to play an out-of-tune version of Chopsticks. And immediately the audience went into an uproar. Who let the boy on stage? Stop him. Children shouldn't be allowed at that piano. Meanwhile, the great pianist was off stage, and he saw everything that was happening. And he quickly slipped up behind the little boy and he whispered, go ahead, keep playing. 
I'll help you. Then he put his arms around the boy and began to accompany him. His ability turned that simple rendition of chopsticks into music so beautiful that the audience was absolutely enthralled. Here's the thing. A lot of what we try to do in life is like trying to play chopsticks like that little boy in the concert hall. We're just not up to the task. We find plenty of people who criticize us. About the time we're ready to give up because the criticism is just so heavy, we find that Jesus meets us along the way. He comes right alongside us and he says, I'm here. I'll help you. And suddenly all the disorder in your life, all the discordant life, becomes a life full of beautiful music. What's the song of your life right now? Is Jesus helping you? What are you keeping from him? Do you not think he has the power or the authority or the superiority? Are your priorities misaligned? Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.